On this episode of the Living Peace Podcast, our guest is best-selling author, mediator, trainer, and self-described resolutionary, Stuart Levine. Stuart Levine is the founder of Resolution Works and is the author of Getting to Resolution, Turning Conflict into Collaboration, a book which was translated into multiple languages and received praise from Dr. Stephen Covey. He is also the author of Book of Agreements, 10 Essential Elements for Getting the Results You Want. His latest book, The Best Lawyer You Can Be, A Guide to Physical, Mental, Emotional and Spiritual Wellness, has just been released by the American Bar Association. You can learn more about Stuart Levine at www.resolutionworks.com. Stuart Levine, welcome to Living Peace Podcast. It's a pleasure to be here with you today, Henry. My absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Stuart. You know, I have to tell you, your book, uh, Getting to Resolution, was one of the inspirations for me to get into this work. So it's such an honor for me to be speaking speaking with you. And, you know, I just realized the book came out in 1998. I was in high school back then, so I didn't read it back (laughs) then. But... um, few years later, but it really was, was a book that, that influenced me a great deal. So um, thank you for joining. That's great to hear. Fortunately, the, um, the second edition came out in, I think it was 2008, somewhere around then. But what I wanted to say about that book was I could remember when I was, when I was writing that, uh, I was living in the city of San Francisco, and I was so excited um, I actually said to myself in one one session, I said, you know, I don't really care if this book ever gets published. I am learning so much in terms of focusing my own thinking about this whole area of uh, resolving conflict and peacemaking that it doesn't matter if it's published. It was, you know, a, a huge value for me to take all those ideas and kind of come up with some what I hope is an integrated whole. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, speaking speaking of uh, of the ideas, one of the main one of the main things you start your book with is this distinction between settlement, compromise, and resolution. So, could I ask you to define resolution for us? Sure. Um, actually, the way I've come to define resolution, you know, um, I'm sure that a, a number of people. Um, listening to this podcast come out of the legal field and and even if not that's okay but the idea of settlement is you know we have a meeting of the minds you know we we've compromised we we um we have an we have an agreement going forward but to me real resolution is not just an agreement of mind but it's also an agreement of heart it's um it to me it's making sure and this is in my model of conflict resolution that people have expressed and gotten out uh, of their body uh, anything that is uh, noodling around on the inside so that when we say it's resolved, it's really resolved. And, you know, to to just add to that definition, resolution means we are comfortable moving forward together in whatever the new relationship will be, and there's no chatter. In other words, we're not still grousing about something that happened in the past. Sometimes, Henry, that's aspirational, but that's okay. That's the 
that's the that's that's the goal. So, so if I'm hearing you right, Stuart, I, I I think that the resolution includes at least an element of understanding for it to to be true resolution. At least an element. Would you? Is that something that would resonate with you? Absolutely. Um, it's getting people back on the same page. It's creating a level of um, of human uh, alignment. You know, what I've come to understand is that the definite uh, communication is an exchange of information for the purpose of creating shared meaning. And so it's the same thing when you resolve a conflict. You've got shared meaning. You're, you're back on the same page. Mm. And speaking of shared meaning, you know, you, one of the great aspects of your model is telling a story. And, and you spend a great deal of time in your book, uh, in your first book, on the aspect of telling the story and listening. But something that I came across in my work has been the role of identity, that identity plays in conflict. And the way I see identity is a story that we get attached to. It becomes an identity. So I wonder, and then once it becomes an identity, it becomes very, very hard to move past that because any attack on the story you know, feels like an attack on the very essence of, of who we are. So, especially in modern times where there seems to be so much division and, and so much difficulty for people to have even a regular conversation with each other, how do you see, what role do you see identity play in that difficulty and how do we overcome it? Yeah, that's a great question, Henry, and it's a, I think it's a very it's a very complex question. You know, um, you know, we we hear bandied about in the media all the time this notion of we're living in an age of identity politics, and and people hold on to that identity. I mean, that's one of the I think major barriers to resolving conflict is that um, if you move people off of their story. Uh, they almost feel like it's a death of some kind. There's a missing life force that people hold on to. Um, and so the way I like to think about this is in some sense the flip side of this, um, and we hear a lot of this in the, um, in the whole uh, dialogue about gender, the idea of fluidity, okay? Uh -huh. And... Um, the idea is if we keep holding ourselves as having a fixed identity, it's almost like being stuck in some ways, whether you're stuck in a conflict or stuck in who you are. And the idea is to get people into the mindset of, oh, yeah, that's who I was at a certain moment in time, but I'm not made out of steel or stone. Um, I can be malleable and move forward. It's kind of like an analogous piece would be that I like to say that um, – Um, the way you need to be in relationship with others is you have to have at the same time both strong barriers, boundaries, and you have to be very porous at the same time. Right? You know, those things may seem diametrically opposed, but you know, so many, so many, so many phenomenons in life are Cohen's just, you know, just like that. You know, it's it's not this or it's this and. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, um, we're talking we're talking adva some advanced thinking right now, um, but I think for a peacemaking community, that's uh, an important place to be. 
So something that, that I've talked uh, about in, in, in some of the courses that I've taught is, is the need to create some space between identity and our story and us. Because the moment we have space, of course, space gives that opportunity for us to expand, for us to expand just beyond that identity. But if we don't, if there is no space, uh, then, then it becomes very, very difficult. And, and, and the analogy that I often use, it's the difference between being in a movie and being in a movie theater, you know? And, and so when you're in the movie theater, you, you can kind of appreciate uh, what's happening on the screen, uh, but not, uh, not be, still be very involved with, with the movie, but not be, not be part of it. And then that allows us to expand and have, uh, and have a dialogue, have a true dialogue, as, it's, as it seems to me. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, um, the distance is so important. Um, mm. One of the things that is the <clears throat> foundation of, of my model mm-hmm. is to get people talking, to get them talking at a deeper and deeper level so that what's inside can get outside to create that, um, that space that you're talking about. Um, it's just such a critical piece. I was once kind of working with a group of students and one person, you know, as we got deeper into the, into the model that I used, said, so, so much of what you're doing is just kind of setting the table so that people can then step into the future. And I say, yeah, absolutely. Uh, getting people, giving them the opportunity to articulate what may have held them in the past and to realize, oh, um, in some sense, that was just a story. It was the way I was talking to myself about it. And I can create a different story if it would serve me more moving into the future. Now, mm-hmm. now if people in the world could be that big, I, um, then I think we have a greater opportunity for peace in this lifetime. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned you mentioned your model, your seven-step model for resolution. Um, I know I'm asking you to be kind of reductionist, and I and I hate doing that. But could you just briefly describe your model? I, I think some of our listeners may be familiar with your book and with your model. But could I just ask you to briefly describe your model of conflict resolution? Sure, um, and it, you know, it's. I'll be even more reductionist than, than you think I'm going to be, and that is to get down to the to the to the the three central core elements. Or number one, telling stories, getting facts out onto the table. You know, and I don't mean to be diminutive by using the word story. What I mean by that is how people are talking to themselves about whatever situation they're in. So that's one. Number two is what I say is getting current and complete means really drilling down to actually say everything that needs to be said. Um, and, and it's a way of purging the emotion that people hold on to. And the third thing is, okay, now we need to be prospective. What will our new agreement be going into the future? Slash what, what, what reconstitution of this relationship can we have beyond this conflict? So essentially, those are the three action steps. Now, to be a little bit more descriptive and to give people the, the, the fuller picture. Number one, conflict happens in the world around us. It just, it just does. All right. 
Um, number two, a mindset that people bring, okay, that I call attitude of resolution or resolutionary thinking, right? Number three, telling stories, you know, as I mentioned, the key first action step. Um, number four, some preliminary vision, meaning after people tell the stories, okay, is this a simple matter that we can just go right to agreement with, or is there a lot of mo emotion or energy that we have to drill down into? Number, the next number would be getting current and complete, which is drilling down into the emotion. Then we have um, agreement in principle. So after everyone has heard everything, everything is, has been kind of um, articulated, what do we see as the future? You know, and this is kind of a way of um, lessening people's fears. Um, are we going to be partners? Uh, are we still going to have an employment relationship? Um, just painting with a broad brush. And then um, the notion of what I call making a full agreement. What is that new relationship uh, going forward? And then you're in a place of resolution, back in action, whatever the new relationship is. So that's kind of the essential conversational model for how um, I deal with conflict. And it's a mind map I use to keep myself on track as I'm trying to be a good facilitator. You know, as you know from your work, um, people always don't follow your models, but you need to have a good mind map of where you're going so that you have a that endpoint in mind and you've got to make sure that you – hit the touchstones along the way, because otherwise things tend to go off the rails. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you this, Stuart. Uh, it's been, uh, you know, some time since you first published Getting to Resolution. Uh, it's been probably over 30 years since Getting to Yes from Harvard came out. Um, so do you see, do you see, did anything change in the way you view conflict or you view conflict resolution in the years that went, went that passed since the publication of getting to resolution? You know, um, the answer is yes and no. Um, I've learned a ton since that book was published, um, through mostly through my teaching experiences um, mm. that have added to my kind of knowledge and also you know, the idea of living this. Um, I think that the biggest thing that's changed is that um, I have a lot more peace inside of me, a lot, more, a lot more knowledge, a lot more things that I don't know, but there's a lot more peace inside me as I've, as I've learned pieces of this model and I've kind of learned how to dance with it in some sense and working with individuals um, or audiences. Um, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned uh, getting to yes. Um, you know, I wrote a follow-up book um, to getting to resolution called The Book of Agreement, um, yeah. which has got about 35 different model agreements. But one of the great satisfactions um, was one of the critical reviews of that book called it more practical than getting to yes. Because getting to yes, for example, and I had the same experience, you know, Stephen Covey uh, endorsed my book, also getting to resolution, which was uh, uh, um, lovely to have. But one of the reasons he loved the book was that it, it actually 
gave people a, a very practical way of getting to win-win agreements. Um, so it's the same, it's the same idea of the practicality, um, of it. But, um, I don't think any of the principles change. You know, I follow a lot of the literature that comes out and so many things are just rehashing of kind of, um, old wisdom. Um, and so when you talk about, you know, getting to yes and interest-based bargaining, um, and getting beyond positions, you know, everything in it, um, is just reflecting of the wisdom, you know, of then and also the wisdom of now. Um, it's one of my great frustrations is in so many situations on this earth today, um, we know better. <laughs> we know better if only people would learn. It's funny, I was just having a conversation um, in the locker room this morning with, you know, um, one of the guys that I, 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 I see at the gym all the time and, and I um, shared a story <clears throat> about being in a cab in San Francisco about 25 years ago and the cab driver happened to be Lebanese and I said, will there ever be peace in the Middle East? What do you think? And his immediate response was, as soon as all the politicians die and aren't replaced, then we might have an opportunity for peace. And it's true because those folks, you know, talk about identity. They hold on to their identity um, like, uh, you know, with a, with a vice uh, grip. Mm. Mm. So I want to touch on something that, that you said, especially something that you said about getting to yes, because I, I remember when I, when I first read Getting to Yes, and, you know, it was a wonderful book. I've read it a few times. But then when I got to that famous example with the orange, uh, I thought it was, it was cute, but I thought that was an example that only a college professor could come up with. Because I don't know, in your, I, I don't know, I don't know about your practice, but in my practice, I'm yet to see those ideal clients who uh, can so neatly and easily get to their needs and who have no prior history, you know, and, and, and the needs are so apparent as they are in the orange and the orange peel example. And, and, and what I thought, and, and this is something that, that I, you talked about taking a deeper look, you know, and, and the importance of going deeper. One of my lessons for getting to yes and, and reading your book was that interests are just the beginning of the inquiry. So sometimes when I teach this, I, I use an iceberg, and I would say, you know, position is right at the very top of the iceberg. The next thing being interest. Then right at the water level, we have emotions. Then underneath the water level, we have values. And then finally, towards the bottom of the iceberg, well below the water level, we have needs. And that's, I always thought were the most fundamental things. Um, you know, because we may have very different positions, different interests. Sometimes our interests are all in the, in the head uh, as well. But when we start getting to needs, it's something that is quite fundamental. And, and, and it doesn't matter who we are. Our needs are the same. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I do. Um, I like your iceberg analogy. I think that all those other pieces, um, the values, the concerns, the identity, 
they can be things that can be um, constricting in some ways. Um, and, you know, this idea, as I mentioned before, about being fluid, it's kind of like, so what do you really need? Yeah. What do you what do you really need in this situation, and why? And, and in some sense, because um, you know, individuals' emotional reaction um, are different. Or to say that a little differently, there is no such thing as a wrong emotion. An emotion is based upon someone's previous life experience, and everybody has a different life experience. So. What somebody really needs, in some sense, might involve unpacking all of those things that are that are above that, um, and maybe in that process of unpacking, you know, whether it's done in a mediation session, whether it's done um, uh, in a um, caucus, um, <clears throat> can help get people to see. Um, why or how um, getting that need met might or might not serve the situation, why it's critical, whether they could, you know, let go, whether what they think they need is not really what they need. Um, You know, all of this kind of masterful, hopefully, nudging that um, a good um, facilitator will get into you know, will help unlock what wherever that stuckness was. So, mm-hmm. you know, I kind of went around and around, and, and but we're we're talking about a phenomenon, as I said, that I think is extremely complex. Mm-hmm. And and some of it, some of it, you know, as you're noodling through it, is based upon you know your rational intellect, and some of it is based upon just being with that person and developing a sense of connection um, and trust. I don't know if you're familiar with the, um, with Elizabeth Bader's work um, Mm -hmm. in this area of, of, uh, because Elizabeth does just an extraordinarily nuanced way of unpacking the whole notion of, of identity and the the psychological aspects um, Mm. that, that both conflict resolution professionals and principles in a situation of conflict um, are in. Mm-hmm. Mm. So something else I want to talk to you about, Stuart, is this. Um, you know, it, we tend to approach conflict, and, it, and this is following out to what you, what you just said, from a very intellectual standpoint, very often. We're staying in our mind. And as one of my teachers said, our mind is a wonderful scalpel. It's wonderful for dissecting things. But it's terrible for sewing, <laughs> you know. And what we're what we're trying to do is actually sew. We're trying to sew a new relationship. Um, we're trying to sew a resolution. So how do we move away? Um, and this is, I think, especially true of lawyers. Um, you know, coming approaching approaching conflict, approaching negotiation from very mental mind-based perspective and kind of ignoring the other elements. So how do we sew and what instrument do we use for sewing? Yeah. Um, So you use your heart for sewing. Okay. 
There's no, there's no question in my mind. And in some ways, as you know, you know what we want, what we want to do. I, I table before is able to drop down into their heart so that we can sow. Um, you know, um, mind and heart is where you want to get to. Heart is what creates that um, that connection. One of my favorite, um, all-time favorite um, articles, and I can't remember the name of the guy who wrote it, was The Mediator is Trickster. The Mediator is Trickster. And it reminds me of a personal story. Um, I was coaching someone, and um, he was really nervous and anxious and upset about a meeting with his twin brother who he hadn't seen in 25 years. Um, and this was a huge emotional uh, uh, um, situation for him. And a number of years before, this is going to sound strange, but I was being a trickster. Um, someone gave me as a gag a pair of bedroom slippers that were made, you know, they looked like Donald Duck, okay? They had these big ducks and they were these big white slippers. <clears throat> and somehow I had this, you know, this brainstorm. Bud, um, you need to wear these slippers in this meeting with your brother. And every time you feel yourself going off, um, just take a look at these, at these slippers. And sure enough, he did that, and it absolutely worked. Um, you know, sometimes it involves being hard. Sometimes it involves, you know, reaching out and touching someone. Sometimes it involves cracking a joke and being humorous. But that's the, that's the piece that does the sewing. It opens people's hearts because in some ways, um, even though we've created the enemy in our mind, we're not. We long for heart connections. We long for, for, for those, those moments. So, um, yeah, that's my, I guess that's my, my tailoring story. All right. <laughs> well, I like, <laughs> really, I like that. It's really funny. Um, I keep looking at the image on the screen here, which people will see. And what I want to show you is who has been observing this 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 conversation. I'll just I'll just lift this I'll just lift this up. <laughs> <laughs> well, isn't that ironic? <laughs> I'll just lift that a little bit. That was a that was a gift from an uncle yeah. uh, many 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 years ago. I've kind of treasured it and it's been with me for a long time <laughs> yes and just for those, for those who will be listening listening uh on audio behind you is, is a pretty fairly large port, portrait of lincoln <laughs> yes <laughs> so 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 how 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 ironic and especially uh in this historic moment um when i think once again you know we as a country and as people uh, seem to be at least as divided as ever, um, probably as divided as the country was uh, when Lincoln was was living, when Lincoln was president. Yeah, and 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 that's why it's a time um, for all peacemakers and um, mediators. Uh, and I remember being inspired by some of Lincoln's early quotes. Uh, you know about his legal practice and about getting people to settle and resolve um, cases. That was, you know, that was the heart mind 
um, that he lived with. And you're absolutely right, Henry. You know, um, this is a time for that that, that presence needed um, in the world. Mm. And I think I, I'm wondering, Stuart, if we can talk about this. So, so I talk, I, I teach a lot of uh, kind of integration between yoga because that's a, my, a lot of my background is in yoga and in Eastern philosophy and uh, mediation and, and conflict resolution. And one thing that always comes up is is, is Bhagavad Gita. You know, Bhagavad Gita takes place, and I, I'm sure you're familiar with Bhagavad Gita, right? So, of course, it takes place on a battlefield. And Arjuna and Krishna are having their epic conversation. And Arjuna is a warrior and he's about to go to war with his cousins and he doesn't feel like it. Um, and he says to Krishna, ah, you know, uh, can't I do something else? Can't I, can't I, I don't want to go to this war. And interestingly, um, Krishna doesn't tell him, make love, not war. He doesn't tell him, leave the battlefield. He tells himself, establish yourself in yoga, and then act from there. So I'm wondering, Stuart, if you could share um, any ways that you establish yourself in peace. You establish yourself in peacemaking so that you can show up as a peacemaker to whatever it is that you do. Because as we talked right before I started recording, um, so much of this work is not about a particular technique you use or a course you took, but how we show up as resolutionaries, as peacemakers, how we show up to conflict. Thank you for using the word resolutionary, right? <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's a great short story behind it, and that is, you know, um, the, the, a client once called me a resolutionary, and I've been using that term on my business card since around 1990. Um, it was after I coached him through a process. Um, as a matter of fact, it's interesting. When um, the iPad first came out, if you went to the Apple, website, Apple web, website, the first thing you saw was the word resolutionary. And some, <laughs> people, were, some people were suggesting I should go after Apple in terms of, you know, um, usurping my, my, my service mark, and I said, uh, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. But to get back to your question, um, you know, when I teach, uh, I, I, and I'm, I'm not teaching as many mediators as I, as, as I once did, but when I was very active, you know, what I would often say was that the key piece that you need to work on to become better um, as a conflict resolution professional is to work on yourself so that you can come to the table with an empty, clear heart with no, no biases. And it's interesting that you use the, um, the yoga metaphor, Henry, because um, what I often say in, in teaching, um, and I use the metaphor for, you know, asanas, for poses, if you want to elongate the stretch, it's not about efforting, but it's about letting go. Okay, it's about it's about letting go, and you know, just to pick up on that, you know, um, me, you know, I have a meditation practice, um, which started around 1985, but I also do swimming meditation and walking meditation, 
and um, and I, you know, my stretching in terms of the morning it has a number of, of practices. So a critical piece is to take care of yourself. You know, I remember early on learning that if you don't take care of yourself, you can't really take care of others. And it's a it's a it's a it's a mindset and a value that has that has lived uh, with me. Um, whatever that is, whatever your personal practice is, whatever you find actually works for you to put you in that grounded, centered place so that you could be there in service to others. And, and that's what it is, being in service to others. Mm. And, speaking- and just one more little tidbit that goes along with that, making sure that the conflicts in your life are resolved in your own life, <laughs> that, that, you know, that you don't live with any uh, ongoing uh, craziness that, that, that is distracting you. And, yeah, we all go through stuff. Um, but to, to do our best to kind of keep that to a minimum so that you can be clear and present for others. Mm-hmm. I was just going to say that this is such a perfect segment to talk about your latest book, and that is The Best Lawyer You Can Be. Speaking of taking care of uh, <laughs> you know, yourself and, 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 and really tuning in. So tell me what, um, what inspired you to write this last book, uh, The Best Lawyer You Can Be? Sure. Uh, well, uh, I have, even though I haven't practiced law formally for a long, long time, I have remained active in the um, American Bar Association Law Practice uh, Management Division. Mm-hmm. And I was on the Wellbeing Committee, and which was a new committee, because the word well-being, you know, has just started to creep into legal circles in the last few years. And pulled um, Afford Humidity just says, uh, so, you know, I think we should write a book. Um, does anyone want to take that project on? <laughs> I don't know why. I just said, sure, I've, I've done a few books. I can do another book. Not a big deal. Um, and I had, I never had any intention of writing the whole book myself, but I have been gathering folks over the last 25 years, um, many of whom have been, um, classified by the American Bar Association as quote legal rebels. Um, and I just started to think about what would be the critical pieces that are needed in this book, who I knew, who I needed to be networked to. And lo and behold, all of a sudden I had, you know, 27 chapters and they came together and I was able to kind of categorize them along an emotional intelligence framework. You know, first is a level of self-awareness, then uh, a level of self-care, and then a level of engaging with others. And lo and behold, um, I, I'm, I'm just really thrilled with the way the book turns out. It's a lovely um, Uh, I think a legacy project. Um, It was a great exercise in uh, leadership and really hurting cats. You know, I wrote an article follow up to that called leadership by nudging, you know, to get all of these um, wonderful um, contributors to actually kind of get their work done. So um, that's the, that's the story of, uh, of that book. And, you know, as I, as I move forward, 
it's not a week that passes that there's not a huge story about well-being within the legal profession that um, really kind of coming to the surface um, because it can be a very difficult space to be in, especially what we know as, you know, big law. Um, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's interesting. So in, in law school, I never learned such things as I learned torts. I learned, I learned contracts, you know, I learned criminal procedure. I never learned how to talk to people. <laughs> and I never, and I never learned how to take care of myself. Uh, so if you were king, uh, you know, and could single-handedly or, or magi- king or magician. So let's say magician, since you used the magic analogy earlier, you know, so you can ma- wave the magic wand and, and single-handedly change legal education in, in this country. How would you change it so that the lawyers come out uh, as resolutionaries, as beings who are ready to not, who, who are not just filled with information, but who are ready to truly serve their clients uh, and, and to enjoy doing that? See, so now you're really tickling my heart, Henry. Because um, for 40 years or so, um, you know, my vision has always been that lawyers should be co-mediators in resolving a situation, right? That we've got this huge body of incredibly smart, talented, critically thinking people carping at each other, and we have so many social problems that um, this energy could be used to actually solve. So how do we move from here to there? You know, um, number one, we make sure that the legal education um, reminds people that the profession really at some level is about problem solving. All right. Um, And what happens is people's problems become lawyers' cases, and then the ego takes hold. Right. Um, You know, historically, um, there were three professions um, doctors, lawyers, and priests. Um, What has happened is, and I, I in great part blame Stephen Brill for this. The notion of big law becoming um, the, the primary metric becoming, you know, billable hours and, and dollars per partner and things like that. And so some recognition and articulation about what the core of this profession was always about. Service, all right? And having that be a part of the, the educational process, you know, not just having the, the, the um, most senior graduates immediately default into um, big law as being the aspiration when it's so many other things. Um, I also go back to the important work of Larry Krieger, who, who I uh, um, selected to write the opening chapter in the book. And Larry's you know, extensive empirical research revealed two things about happy lawyers. One, 
the happiest lawyers have a autonomy, meaning they don't take any cases. Um, they only take cases congruent with their own value. And B, they're not at the mercy of some boss. How to, how to maintain their own individual integrity. And number two, happy lawyers are relational. Mm-hmm. They, as you said, you didn't learn how to speak in law school. We didn't learn about communication skills. When we got out and started practicing law, then we went, oh, wow, this whole practice of law is not about the law. That's way in the background. It's about dealing with people and dealing with problems. And so we need to have a, a, a focus about what the actual practice of law is so people can learn those interpersonal skills that are part of emotional intelligence. Um, if people start to have that level of skill, consciousness, awareness, maybe slowly um, this um, shift um, can take place and lawyers can return to their traditional role as leaders and problem solvers and not just money makers. Mm, mm. What a, what a beautiful vision. And I think uh, I'd like to end this, this podcast episode on, on this vision, because I think it's such a beautiful thing to aspire to. So let me just stop the recording and then you and I can chat for a moment. So thank you for, thank you for joining us, Stuart Levine on the living peace podcast. Thank you. My pleasure.